Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I am Blake Dean, here with my co-host, the Reverend Aaron Monez, and today we are excited to host author and biblical scholar Carolyn Custis James. Carolyn Custis James got her Bachelor's of Arts in Sociology and Master's of Arts in Biblical Studies and is an award-winning author who thinks deeply about what it means to be a female follower of Jesus in a postmodern world. As a cancer survivor, she is grateful to be alive and determined to address the issues that matter most. Her speaking and writing ministry is dedicated to addressing the deeper needs and issues confronting both men and women as they endeavor to extend God's kingdom together in a messy, complicated world. Her books have been described as provocative, honest, and groundbreaking, and they include her most recent work, Finding God in the Margins, The Book of Ruth, um, Maelstrom, Manhood Swept into the Currents of a Changing World, and Half the Church, Recapturing God's Global Vision for Women. Aaron, what should the listeners be excited to hear on today's podcast? Oh, gosh. Um, this podcast is going to set the concrete in for which we will build the house of gender theology. The great thing about Carolyn Custis James is that she has a couple of ideas that are what I consider the orienting pieces for gender theology, things that um, allow all the other conversations that we have to be um, bolstered and uh, justified and aim us in the right direction to ask the right questions. So um, her books and her work um, have are, are, are integral to the subject and are must-reads for anybody who's interested in gender theology. And you're going to hear that, but you're also going to hear her mm. refer back to uh, places in scripture where we see these frameworks lived out again and again. Um, she doesn't let us uh, kind of think of gender theology in a vacuum. It's all deeply connected yeah. to the gospel. So listeners, I think you're in for a real treat. And we should say that while she is deeply pastoral in um, today's podcast, she's also a proper academic. She currently is the adjunct faculty at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia and a consulting editor for Zondervan's exegetical commentary series on the New Testament. Um, she's founder and president of the Synergy Women's Network, which is a national network of women emerging or engaged in ministry leadership. Um, and her husband, Frank, is president and professor of historical theology at Missio Seminary. And they live together in Sellersville, Pennsylvania. And I think you're really going to like today's episode. So enjoy. Excited to be with our guest here today, and um, before we we really introduce you to all the great content coming from our our new friend Carolyn Custis James, um, as our listeners know, we start out every segment with watch, read, or listen. So, Blake Dean, tell me what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Well, Aaron, mine is a um, a touch, and I'm not embarrassed. I wouldn't say, um, but it is odd. Um, I've been watching numerous Barbara Streisand interviews from the 1960s. And why? I don't have an answer to that question. I've always, I find her a fascinating character. The fact that she has a shopping mall on her, like, like, um, on her property. She has like a whole building that she's created into her own little shopping mall is really fascinating to me. Um, and I love Funny Girl. So I've been watching a lot of Barbara Streisand interviews. And now I'm really nervous since I've been watching these interviews that I'm saying her last name wrong because she's really sensitive about how you say her last name, but I haven't heard it said correctly yet. So I'm going to research that immediately following this podcast. And the good news is I, she's I, not listening. I'm just, no, I don't think she's listening. No, I think, I think we're, I think we're okay to, to get, get out of that pickle. Um, well, you know, Blake Dean, I, I think that's so on brand for you, but I, I was hoping that maybe you were going to bring up the intellectual prowess Absolutely of this, not. of this segment, because I am bringing it down. Um, because what I have been listening to lately is a soundtrack to a movie we just watched called Eurovision. Oh, I've heard good the things. Se- story of, 
Fire Saga. It's a Will Ferrell film. And I'm not, I don't tend to be a Will Ferrell fan, I got to be honest. But the music that it's like this, this pop group from Iceland. And I, it could not be a weirder plot. And my husband was like, it's really funny. We've got to watch it. And I downloaded the soundtrack. <laughs> and that is what I've been listening to sort of like faux pop Icelandic Euro songs. I, I, I apologize for nothing. I just, I, that truly, if we're being honest, that is what I'm listening to. And I, and I feel like we might need to be rescued here. So I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn to our wonderful guest, um, Carolyn Cussis James. Uh, Carolyn, welcome to the podcast. Uh, what are you currently watching or reading or listening to that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. Well, um, during this pandemic, we've been taking care of our two little granddaughters who are ages six and almost five. So I've been reading Winnie the Pooh. Yes. <laughs> and I've been watching Paw Patrol and Frozen 1 and 2. Yes. Um, we, we talked them into watching um, some of the BBC's productions of um, Narnia, which they loved and um but anyway <laughs> that's been a lot of what i'm doing and then when i have a break i'm i'm reading um nt Wright and uh, my words uh the new testament in its world and um loving it so anyway but <laughs> i don't have much time to do that kind of thing and uh, if I'm enjoying the other things I'm doing with the girls, um, it's it's been a lot of fun. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. Yes, it, it is. <laughs> it is hard to get in that that high intellectual pursuit in between, you know, frozen viewings for sure. And I, but but all all a delight. But to be honest, I watched Frozen two recently and just wept profusely. So I. <laughs> Yes. I do not look down upon Frozen 2. Yeah, uh, there are parts of it that are actually very biblical, Do the next That's where right I just started thing. crying. That song. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Mm. I know. I know. Well, friends, if you if you can't tell already, we're having so much fun on this episode, and it just started. Um, we are we are thrilled to have Carolyn Custis James here, who um, has written so many books that have been so influential in my life. Um, but in this discussion in season two, we are trying to give you as listeners some content that will help you navigate some of the classic conversations that we often find ourselves in um, when talking about gender theology, either in our homes and our relationships in church and in society. And I am so excited about this because Carolyn has um, written extensively about a concept called the Blessed Alliance. And I feel that this is just a cornerstone for anybody who is especially engaging in these topics, but for all Christians in general. And so Carolyn, I was wondering if you could give us a maybe a, a summary of what you coin as the Blessed Alliance and a little bit about how that theological framework affects the way we discuss gender. It, to me, it's really central to the Bible's message for men and women. Um, you know, I, all my work has come out of my own struggles, um, my own questions to understand what is the Bible's message for me as a woman? And I had to ask it in the middle of a void. So, you know, I, I was raised in a, a conservative Christian family. My father was a pastor and there was a, a very clear roadmap for me as a woman that, you know, post-college you get married, you have, you have kids and you find your greatest fulfillment in uh, being a wife and mother and volunteering in the church. And um, I had 10 years of singleness after college. And um, it was like the bottom dropped out. And, you know, texts in scripture and books about women, you know, in, in my context, um, it was never an issue for a woman to be a pastor or any of that. Um, it, was, it was not gonna be discussed and you know, it wasn't going to happen. And so that never was a goal for me or a question that I was wrestling with, but I couldn't find myself in anything else. 
And, um, you know, when you're reading some of the biblical texts, like the creation narrative, I felt like I was on the outside looking in because the creation of the woman is discussed typically and written about in commentaries um, as the creation of marriage. Mm. What happened to me was that I ended up going back to scripture and saying, what is, what is the Bible's message for all of us? And not just women who aspire to leadership positions and have gifting in that area, but for little girls and elderly women and women who aren't married or women who move into a career, or women who are flourishing as wives and mothers, you know, is, is the Bible's message big enough for all of us? And um, can, I, can I tell it to any woman, no matter who she is or where she lives in time or geography, or what she sees when she looks in the rearview mirror. Can I tell a, a woman who's coming out of sex trafficking, does this hold up for her or is it just demolished? And I, I went back to the creation narrative asking those kinds of questions. You know, I don't wanna leave any woman or girl behind in, in what I'm looking for. Um, I, I want to pay careful attention to what God is saying about human beings when he creates them. Um, and I don't want to make jokes about men and women. And, you know, sometimes these narratives are used to, for, for jokes, you know, jokes about men or jokes about women or diminishing women or, and I didn't want to do any of that because this is God's vision for his creation. And God is serious about what he's talking about here. And I found three things that I believe are, are God's vision for humanity. And that is the vision God is recovering through Jesus. So it, it's the overarching umbrella to the whole biblical text. And, um, the three things were, all three of them were just revolutionary for me. The first is that we are God's image bearers. And this isn't just to distinguish us from plants and animals. It's raising us to the highest imaginable level of all of God's creatures. Um, it means that we are created to speak and act for God, that people are supposed to learn about him by rubbing shoulders with us, that he has entrusted to us the care of his creation, that the objective is for all to flourish, and that the rule that he entrusts to both men and women is outward over creation. It's not hmm. lateral towards each other. And that that only happens after the fall. So that was the first thing. And, and, you know, that being God's image bearer is a call to leadership, that it means we have responsibility for what's going on in God's world. It means none of us are meant to be spectators. Mm -hmm. um, so it just, and it, and any other social system is much lower than what God is establishing here for us. Well, that was the first thing. And the second thing is in the first chapter, and that is when, um, when he creates his image bearers, male and female. And then it says that he blesses them. And that's where I get this idea of a blessed alliance. And he, and he sends them out to rule over all creation and to do his work in the world. So the, the blessed alliance is it's not just for men and women to get along better. It's about for men and women to be focused on their primary identity, which is to be God's image bearer, which means our first task is to know the God who created us, to look at the world through his eyes, to care about what matters to him, um, and, and to be the good news that he brings to humanity. Um, 
but then he calls us to do it together. That he calls his male and female image bearers, he blesses them and then he sends them out with this huge mandate over all creation. And um, I, I liken it to um, load-bearing walls that God created a world and his kingdom to rest on two load-bearing walls. And the first is the relationship that we have with our creator. I mean, we can't know who we are or why we're here or how we are to live if we don't know the God who created us to be like himself. And it means we have to work at it. You know, I often use the example of Hollywood stars that are given uh, real people to portray, like Helen Mirren to portray um, Queen Elizabeth or Jamie Foxx to uh, portray Ray Charles. And although these actors are incredibly gifted and experienced, they both said that they had to make that person their study in order to emulate them, that they practiced what they learned. And so we, this isn't automatic. We have to give effort to this. And so that's the first load bearing wall is the relationship between God's image bearers and himself. But the other is the male-female relationship. And this is, to me, foundational. It's not just um, a pretty picture of, you know, cooperation. It's a kingdom strategy for how he means thing, for things to work in his world. And um, so the, the, the first chapter of Genesis is a focus on the vertical relationship between God and his image bears, but the second chapter centers in on this male-female relationship. And it doesn't talk about marriage until the very end of the text, when the writer gives a very strong anti-patriarchal statement that we don't understand in our culture. But in patriarchal cultures today, they would be shocked because it says that a, that a man, for this reason, the the paradigm that God has set forth, that a man would leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Um, in patriarchy, a bride becomes the property of her husband's family, and she is under their thumb. And even if he dies, she, she still belongs to them. And yeah, I mean, people in those cultures would be dumbfounded by that statement. You know, we just think we use it in weddings and, you know, it's so, but when he creates the female, he's making very strong statements about men and women. When he says it's not good for the man to be alone after he's created the man, it needs to be said that there's nothing wrong with the man that he was created at the climax of God's creative activity and that he's a masterpiece. He's just finished naming the animals, which is the beginning of science. So he's not saying I made a mistake. There's something lacking in this man that I've created. He's, he's saying what I'm going to create, he needs. And he creates the woman out of the man. And when he sees her, he sees himself, mm -hmm. you know, this is they're my bones and my flesh. This is, this is me in a different form. I mean, it's a very strong identification that he makes with her. And the language that's used for her, when I came to this text was, you know, a key debate in the gender debate in the church. Um, that the woman is described as in English as the helper. And scholars had already understood that um, the, this word azer, which is translated helper, was used 21 times in the Old Testament. And um, that it was used twice in Genesis for the woman. It was used three times when Israel, to describe armies that Israel was appealing to to come and help them be 
because they were being overpowered by an enemy. And the remaining 16 times it's used for God as the Azer of his people. And so they sort of upgraded Azer to strong helper, but they still wanted to keep her in her place. And I started looking up all those verses and the word Azer um, is, is a military term. It's used for God as the defense and shield of his people. There's always middle um, military language in these texts. And, um, I even have Robert Alter, mm-hmm. the uh, preeminent Hebrew yeah. scholar, um, as saying the same thing that this is a this is a military term. This is not you know your junior assistant or your domestic help or your child producer. This is saying all women are Azer warriors that we engage in the battle for God's kingdom. And that we provide strength to to our brothers, to our Christian brothers, um, that we get in their path <laughs> if they're heading down the wrong way, that we have responsibility for what's happening in God's world, and we have responsibility to them. Um, I, I think, um, I'm giving you a rather long answer to all of this, but um, I think that where I started to learn the most about this was in my marriage. Because when I got married, I, you know, I thought, okay, I know, I know what, how this works. And I know what my position is. And um, yeah, I can work while he's finishing his education. But, you know, we're doing him. We're doing his story. And um, my husband would have none of it. When we first were married, he said to me, you need to find out what your gifts are and what God wants you to do with your life. And I'm not the answer to that question. And I never expected to hear that. And, and he has been a mentor to me. Um, he's been rather bossy at points. <laughs> push me out the door and say, you can do this. Um, he's been an advocate and a champion. He, he opens doors. He, um, you know, when we first, when I first started into, you know, just stepping into opportunities, um, it was in the business world. It wasn't in ministry and I wasn't sure I could be a manager and, you know, and he would say things to me like, if you get in over your head or there's something you can't handle, we'll talk about it. You know, you're not alone. And and it's worked that way for both of us that, you know, I want him to be the best he can be. I want to be his strongest ally in whatever battles he faces. Um, I don't want to be married to an arrogant um, authoritarian I, I want him to breathe the gospel when he's working with people. And, you know, so we're, we're safeguards for each other. We are, um, we push each other. We are uh, together in what's going on. And he, he does that with people he works with. He, I'm not the only beneficiary of this. And, you know, I do it in, in other friendships that I have. If we, if we worked on this, we wouldn't have to be alone. It wouldn't matter if we were married or single or divorced or widowed or young or old, you know, that, that there would be a support system that we're committed to, that we understand it to be a load-bearing wall um, of God's kingdom strategy. And, um, and I see it all the time, you know, some of the best moments in scripture are where a man and a woman join forces for the purpose of God. And they're, they're not in it for themselves. There's sacrifice involved. Um, there's they're mission minded and there are, are evidences of the gospel reflected in how they treat one another and what propels them into action. So, um, you know, the enemy did a real number when he 
broke down both of those walls, both of those load-bearing walls with that first blow in the Garden of Eden. So, you know, that's the mission that God is committed to restoring in his world. I wonder if you could talk um, or give an example about um, ta- your favorite times in scripture where men and women work together in that way. Oh, there are a lot of them. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of times we, when interpretations, I mean, historically, and I stand on the shoulders of these men, but historically, you know, biblical interpretation has mm-hmm. been male. And there are just things they don't they don't pay attention to that um, they don't they just don't see. I mean, my own father, after reading some of my books, said to me, "You see things I don't see." He didn't argue with it. He just said, "I didn't get I didn't see that." And um, you know, the strongest example in the Old Testament is the book of Ruth. And typically when, when we've gotten interpretations of stories that involve women, we either look at it as a romantic sexual thing, um, good or bad, whichever way the story happens to go. We um, look at the woman as um, sort of being turned to when there's a male leadership failure. Um, we talk about women as seductresses, mm-hmm. And we blame them for a lot of things where we're not looking carefully at the story. And, um, you know, this is why it has been really exciting to be a woman in biblical studies. Um, And it took me a while to take off the male glasses and start to look as a woman at the text. Um, But the book of Ruth is a blessed alliance between Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And... I think it's one of the strongest examples of the gospel in the Old Testament. Um, and I don't think it's a love story. I, um, it's at least not a romantic love story. It's a Hesed love mm-hmm. story, which entails sacrifice and um, voluntary sacrifice and a stubborn love that will go beyond the extra mile. And all three of them do that. And there are lots of others. There's Paul when he gets the vision to go to Macedonia. And when he gets there, it's a group of women. You know, this is a patriarchal culture. And he's coming out of a very radical, uh, militant, uh, pharisaical sect. And he comes and I had one pastor called it the ultimate letdown, (laughs) you know, that he would, that he would get this vision and he would rearrange his itinerary and go. And when he comes, it's, it's just women. It's just women. And he sits down and he teaches them. And, you know, I think the first church planters in Europe were women. You know, it's not like the Philippian jailer suddenly became the elder in charge. You know, these women were learning from Paul. And um, and the way he writes the book of Philippians, he says, I thank God for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And translators change that all up and say, from the beginning or when you first heard... But it's not. It's the first day. And the first day, it was all women. So he's referencing them. Anyway. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's when you start to see it, it's just, you know, Esther and Mordecai and Mary and Joseph. And, you know, their, their stories wouldn't have played out if the women hadn't stepped up. And would they have stepped up or what would have happened to them if the men hadn't been there, you know, with them in those, you know, standing with them and, you know, paving the way and calling them out. Um, I mean, it's just, it's powerful and beautiful. And it's not about who's first or who wins or who has the 
post-authority. It's about what is God calling us to do and what's the best way to do it? And how can I bring 100% of myself to get you to bring 100% of yourself? You know, to think of it in terms of a gender battle misses the point, misses the point. And, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I do if it wasn't for men who have taught me and men who have encouraged me and brothers who have called me to, you know, come talk about this. And it, you know, it's, we need each other. It means a lot. Oh gosh. Yes. No. And thank you so much for that, Carolyn. This is, this is why I wanted to, to start off with this, the, the, the blessed alliance framework because it really does not only create um this framework that um that is so central to the discussion of 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 men and women but it is embedded deeply into the story of redemption in the gospel that threads itself throughout all of scripture and so um i think sometimes it's easy to feel like we're siloing a sort of niche discussion over here about like gender theology like that's a, just this little thing over here um and what i love is that you you say no this this whole idea that god created two genders he's male and female in his image as image bearers for these purposes um, is, is, is part of how we understand God, how we understand our, our role, how we understand God's mission, how we understand our part in that story. Um, and so uh, listeners, I would commend all of Carolyn's books to you and, uh, and one in, in particular that, that she mentions the, the gospel of Ruth. Um, that was, that was a real game changer for seeing these alliances show up in scripture and sort of um, revisiting with new eyes the way that God is is working this uh, throughout throughout the narrative so um, so I appreciate that I want to I want to ask a question that that I think will be helpful to listeners because um, I think for many of them they resonate with what you're saying they they are in there but um, will possibly face counters from people who say, well, yes, of course, men and women are image bearers and on mission for the gospel, but in these roles that create these hierarchies, and that's how God is choosing to produce that mission where women uh, are in a submissive, subservient role and men um, are the leaders. And uh, so I was wondering if you could uh, give us just your own reflection on um, how you would you would take what you just told us in answer to to that particular setup or someone trying to take that idea and tweak it into a hierarchy. Yeah. I don't think Jesus came to give us hierarchy. Um, for me, the, what is typically called the gender debate is not a gender question. It's a stewardship question. Mm. And, you know, when I, when I first started to hear of new work being done in the book of Ruth and I've taken it and run with it. And I'm still learning new things from the book. of Ruth. I've written two books about Ruth and um, there's more, there's still more. I can hardly believe it, but you know, <laughs> it's true. We haven't, we haven't, we've barely scratched the surface in understanding what is in God's word and how subversive and radical it is. You know, when I heard, scholars saying that Ruth was initiating the action in the book of Ruth, that she is bringing a different interpretation to Mosaic law. One scholar calls it a more generous interpretation. And it's really the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. You know, let them glean or feed them. Big difference. And when he, when these scholars started, I started hearing that the, that Ruth was initiating the action in the book of Ruth and that Boaz was responding to her initiatives. I had to rethink my whole life. And I have to tell you, I was, it was, I learned, I started hearing about it in a class where, where the professor was going to talk about the book of Ruth. And I thought, well, I know that one because <laughs> you know, I grew up on the Bible and 
then he started talking about, you know, the book of Ruth is a, is the story of a female Job and Naomi is a female Job and that Ruth is the hero in the story and that she's initiating the action. Initiate was a word that wasn't supposed to be in my vocabulary as a woman. And when I heard that, I just feel like the book of Ruth draws a much bigger circle for us than Priscilla or Junia or Deborah, because she's an undocumented immigrant. She's a brand new convert. She's a, a widow without sons. So she's a total zero and unprotected in her culture. She's in poverty and she's scavenging for food. And she's God's point person at that moment in history, not some king or some warrior or some, this undocumented impoverished immigrant. I just thought I have to rethink everything. I mean, I, I still grieve over the waste in my story because I thought I was going to be doing somebody else's story and they were the ones who had to step up. And I just, you know, it, it, it was the book of Ruth. And I just thought there are no excuses now. I owe it to Jesus to give him everything. And I owe it to him to speak the truth as best I can. And I am not a spectator to what's happening. I have responsibility for what's happening around me. And I'll tell you what, it has been amazing to share these stories with women. I heard about a group of middle schoolers, six, seventh, eighth grade girls, who were reading Lost Women of the Bible in the Philadelphia area. And I said, I have to meet these girls. And it was mind boggling. These little girls were absolutely on fire. And one of them said, I always thought I would be a veterinarian. Now I want to go to seminary. <laughs> you know, was, but they were, and, and then they prayed after they met with me, they prayed. And, I'll never forget hearing their hearts. Why shouldn't they be captivated by their calling? Mm. It's not down the road, it's now. And I hear elderly women in their 90s telling me that they're asking the Lord what he, what he wants them to do with the rest of their lives. And they're getting assignments, you know, it's just... God's message for his sons and his daughters is for all of us. And it starts with that first breath and it doesn't expire. Mm -hmm. And so to look at somebody as sort of, you know, out of the picture now, we don't know where God is doing the most important things. And, you know, when you look at the story of Ruth, God can be very subversive in how he moves his purposes forward. And they never knew. They never knew what he did because all they were trying to do was feed, feed Naomi and restore a male heir to Naomi's family, to Elimelech. They didn't know what, what the outcome of that would be. They didn't. And we don't know what God does through us. None of us know. And some of the biggest things are probably happening in remote places with people we would never dream have a role to play in God's kingdom that, you know, don't get interviewed on the news or, you know, write a book or pastor a church or whatever. Mm. Yeah. And I just find it very exciting and, I keep, you know, I want to read scholars who make me think and who make me keep moving. Uh, one of the things my husband and I promised each other before we got married was that we wouldn't stop changing, mm -hmm. that we would keep growing. And because there's more to learn. There is more to learn. The book of Ruth, I wrote those two books about Ruth. After the book of, second book was published, we had Me Too. And the book of Ruth is a Me Too story that didn't happen. Very instructive, the kind of man Boaz was. Yes. 
he could have done anything to her and nobody would have taken her word for his. Nobody would have. He not only protected her, he protected his nearest relative. And I also never noticed before that the entire book of Ruth takes place in the workplace and the legal system. There's no temple, there's no tabernacle, there's no priest, there's no prophet. It's just ordinary people doing their job, doing their work. All of them are drawn into this hesed behavior where they're putting the interests of others ahead of themselves. So there's a, at least a third book in there. I'm excited about that. <laughs> oh, we third can't book. we can't wait. Thank you so much for that. I think something I've been thinking about a lot currently is how um, we, whether that be like culture makers or participators, um, or church people being leaders or lay people, when we talk about manhood or womanhood, um, separately or together, it often comes in sketches and prescriptions rather than um, real life embodied examples. Um, I'm not I'm not thoroughly convinced anyone um, fits all the criteria that is um, implicitly or explicitly laid before us. Um, and so to have um, embodied examples of womanhood and manhood um, in its various forms is um, helpful to us. Um, and I've, I've, I've really thought about Ruth and Boaz as being um, kind of those two exemplars, but even just listening to you, I'm compelled by that. I wonder if you could talk um, briefly about how Boaz's manhood is gospel, is reflecting the gospel, maybe in conversation with your work in Maelstrom, which is your book on manhood. I wonder if you could um, talk about that briefly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Boaz is introduced into the story as a very powerful man. Um, I think by the time the story ends, his power has been demonstrated in even stronger ways than we would have anticipated. You know, I think we have, I think we have this idea that, um, well, let me put it this way. Male power is a gift. It's a trust. It's how this fallen world works that certain people, and sometimes it's women who have power, that power is a trust. And Boaz doesn't shed his power ever in the story. He employs it to empower Ruth. He employs it to lead his workers to participate in empowering her. He uses it at the city gate. He's like a bulldozer at the city gate because he's saying, Naomi, a widow, is selling her property. Who gave Naomi property rights as a widow? He just did. He's saying that whoever purchases that land has to marry Ruth. Who says they have to marry Ruth? Boaz did, <laughs> you know? Why would they have to marry her? But there's not a whisper of opposition to him. And he's, he's giving his nearer relative the full rights to it. And it is a gamble because she's been barren for 10 years. So what are the chances that she'll get pregnant and what are the chances that it'll be a boy, you know, is pretty low. If she does give birth to a boy, that means whoever bought the property began to utilize it and make it produce, just invested in a losing prospect there because all of that will go to her son and his own sons will earn will will inherit less. So it's the the nearer relative said it will ruin me. I can't risk it. And I think it ruined Boaz. I think he took a huge financial hit. And you know, we sort of lose sight of all of that when we finish up the book of Ruth, but I don't I don't believe that Boaz was a bachelor. Um it could have been a widow, widower, but you know, the first audience to this book wouldn't care because polygamy was part of that patriarchal culture. 
And, um, you know, it could not have been, he could not have been eyeing Ruth with romantic intentions and remained an honorable man because the, the power differential between them was monumental. It would have been such an abuse of power. And, and if he had been a bachelor, he would never have been a man of honor because in the patriarchal culture, the urgency to produce sons is intense. And I, I, a young man who doesn't marry and get busy, you know, producing sons and is a, is a shame to his family. So I believe he was married and had sons. He's the same generation as Naomi, both Naomi and Boaz address Ruth as my daughter. Um, and there's general consensus that he's an older man. And um, so, you know, but what I'm saying is you can't shed your male advantages, but you can use them either for selfish purposes or to bless and empower others. And there are men doing that. You know, men who are investing themselves in helping others get on their feet and um, or calling someone out and saying, you have gifts and you need to be, you know, cultivating those. Or like my husband did me, you know, I think, you know, it's it, it can be a great, a great blessing. And, you know, to, to create this dichotomy where we have to strip men of, you know, or they have to pretend that they don't have advantages. I mean, we've got all sorts of privileges and advantages and powers that, you know, we can, and, and we do indulge ourselves mm -hmm. with. Um, but, you know, Jesus doesn't set that example. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I, Boaz is awesome. <laughs> In summary. <laughs> Yes, in summary, yes. Oh gosh. Well, and that's and that's a, a segue to. Unfortunately, we we're we're getting close to time, but uh, we always want to give our guests um, a time at the end of the podcast to tell our listeners about either their most the latest projects they have or something they're working on right now. How can our listeners um, support your work, follow your work? Um, I, I know your your most recent uh, Finding God in the Margins, the Book of Ruth, in addition to your earlier book, The Gospel of Ruth, uh, really continues on these themes, but. Uh, but Carolyn, really just tell us, how can we, what are you working on and how can we support you? Yeah, I have to say I was really shaken by the Me Too Church Two movements. And um, looking at the need to examine our theology for how our theology is contributing to the problem, uh, how our teaching in the church about submission and silence for women puts us at peril um, and contributes to the dilemma that a young girl or a woman would be in when she's being pressured to on something because we haven't we haven't cultivated that strength the strength to say no um, the strength to persevere in getting help. Um, we've overlooked the Bible's Me Too stories, and there are many of them. So I'm working on uh, getting started. It's hard when I, Winnie the Pooh is my <laughs> main book that I'm reading. But, um, to, um, to look at our theology of men and women, to look at how our teaching in the church is contributing to the problem. Why is this happening in the church? Um, and um, to bring forward the Bible's Me Too stories as a way to bring awareness of the problem. Um, you know, they are all over in the scripture and they, and they just get overlooked. Um, so that's one of the projects and the project that that one is interrupting is that my husband and I 
are working on developing more about the blessed alliance and doing something together on that in a book so that's what we're up to yeah that's, that's very exciting we very much look forward to those uh projects and, and the fruition of that um and we want to continue to recommend to listeners um uh carolyn's previous books mentioned in the the bio uh that started this podcast and we'll list them in the show notes for you with with links to uh, where you can purchase those um i can't recommend them enough just just each one of them it, they will change and and interrupt uh, your life in the best ways um carolyn we really believe that that god has has uh, ordained you with some wonderful gifts and um there's there's so much about my own journey that where i wouldn't even be had i not first picked up lost women of the bible oh gosh a decade or so ago when i was uh teaching a group of middle school girls um, long before I entered into this part of my vocation. And um, so it is, it's just been such a pleasure and such a joy to, to speak with you today. And uh, we will, there's so much we didn't even get to. I have so many more questions and things that I want to pick your brain about. So we're just going to have to have you back on the podcast again um, because this, this was, this was wonderful. Well, it's a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. Wonderful. All right. Well, listeners, thanks again. Oh my gosh, Blake Dean. I, I just, well, I just got an item off my bucket list. I just talked to one of my heroes. This, ah, I, I don't even really know what to say about this episode because I'm, I'm still just sort of absorbing all the amazing, wise, wonderful things that are Carolyn Custis James. It's just so great. Listeners definitely pick up her her latest book about about Ruth, and also just be on the lookout for the for the projects that she's telling us about. It looks like yeah. she is invested in some major works, and she has been reflecting very deeply on um, the power dynamics in the church related to the Me Too and Church Two movement. So I I am super excited. But go follow her on um, on she's on Facebook, she's on Twitter. Um, we will put all of this in the show notes for you, um, but you will not want to miss out on Carolyn Custis James and everything that she has done prior to now and everything that is to come. So be sure to follow and support her. Yeah. And also thank you for joining us today. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, which we know that you did, mm-hmm. um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use. We love getting feedback but we also love connecting with you all and if you really loved the podcast you should join our patreon account uh you'll receive early released episodes of the podcast um, as well as additional content from your favorite co-hosts so go and check that out i promise it's worth at least a scroll absolutely and i'm blake dean with my co-host the reverend aaron monez and our fabulous producer bailey dingley where mutuality matters